Today's show is brought to you by Noom. Small steps make big progress. Visit noom.com slash real life to start your trial today. Today's show is also brought to you by Stamps.com. Get a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale when you go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and enter our code LAST. And today's show is also brought to you by Brooklinen. These are the best sheets we've ever slept on. You can get 10% off and free shipping by entering the promo code REAL at brooklinen.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week. Real life. Which means some episodes might be about... A fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things, and maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, special treat for today. So To Hell With The Hustle is coming out very, very soon. We are in the month of October, which means it comes out in two weeks. By the way, if you go to tohellwiththehustlebook.com, you can get four or five different freebies. You can get three free chapters, a 10 uh, ways to de-hustle your life PDF, some video interviews, and a bunch more all for free if you just pre-order one book. So if you're going to get the book sometime, get the freebies to hellwiththehustlebook.com. But what's special about this episode is I'm previewing another chapter for you guys. This is chapter four, and I think this is actually one of the core chapters of the book. I think you guys are going to enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy. Here it is. Chapter four, why silence is so loud. I'm currently writing this book at a coffee shop. And because I'm acutely aware of noise as I write about it, I just close my eyes for a few seconds. I'm trying to concentrate on all the noise around me. I can hear some indie music playing overhead, a barista sliding back the icebox lid, then scooping and rattling the ice, and another barista yelling, turkey bacon sandwich. I hear cups and lids snapping together, and a door opening, muffled voices at the next table, and the drive through window opening. It's amazing how noisy it really is for a quiet place that many people use for work and how good we have gotten at being numb to this noise. For an added dose of irony, there's a poster on the wall behind me that says in big, bold font, quote, take the sound of Starbucks with you. It's an advertisement to download the Spotify playlist they are playing right now when you leave. Nah, I'm good. I don't want to take the sound with me. Here's the reality, though we actually do take noise with us. Noise is an airborne pathogen we are breathing in constantly. It gets buried in our body for better or for worse. We are creatures of this earth with five senses and hearing is one of them. We read a lot about how our current way of doing things is harming the earth through our machines, factories, oil spills in our oceans, waste, depletion of resources, pollution, and many other things. But there is one I rarely hear about from politicians or those on the nightly news, noise pollution. Because of the insane levels of noise in our culture, a part of the human brain is being taxed far more than in previous generations. A part of your brain that is actually meant to fight and filter the noise by quote called sensory gating. That's sometimes explained as the quote cocktail party effect. For example, when there are a hundred people talking in close quarters, If you have normal hearing, you have no problem being able to focus on the conversation right in front of you. Your brain is sensory gating, or blocking out all the irrelevant noise and stimuli. You aren't actively doing it, it's just happening. 
which is why when I was in Starbucks in the beginning of this chapter, I didn't hear anything of those things I mentioned first, and it actually felt quiet and peaceful until I purposely concentrated on the noise my brain was subconsciously blocking out. This part of the brain helps us focus and not be overwhelmed by outside stimuli, from sight to touch to smell. But an increased level of noise taxes the body and brain more than it can sometimes handle. Our brains have always used the process of sensory gating. But if the sensory gating part were a wheelbarrow, then 100 years ago it had to only carry one pound loads. Today, though, it has to carry 100 pound loads. That part of the brain responsible for sensory gating now sounds like a Ferrari engine pushing the gas pedal as hard as it can go with no brakes ever. It's affecting us in deep ways. One study in Japan found a deep connection between sensory gating deficiency and chronic fatigue syndrome. In other words, our brains are literally exhausted because of the noise. In addition, a clinical test can be given to determine your level of sensory gating deficiency. And guess what condition is usually present in people with extremely high sensory gating deficiency rates? Schizophrenia. I think this is interesting because we tend to think mental health is contained within an individual, whereas our culture's unprecedented noise and stimulation may also be at fault by overwhelming and exacerbating people mentally. And I think that's true even more for those without a significant mental disorder. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about Noom. You know we love Noom. Uh, the main reason I love Noom and their services and the app is because it's not just about losing weight. It's actually an app to develop healthier habits uh, and just feeling better about yourself. And so that's why I absolutely love them. Uh, there's physical examples of what it's done for me. I, you know, just better clarity in the mind, um, more energy, all those different things. And also it just allows me through their app to uh, make better choices um, and just consistently stay um, habitual with things I want to continue to grow at. And now if you don't know what Noom is, they're basically a habit changing solution that helps you learn to develop a new relationship uh, through personalized courses. It's based in psychology, so it's very holistic and makes sense and allows you to grow and grow and get better towards the goals you want to. I love it because uh, it has a huge database of just nutrition and all these things that are really helpful to me that I really am thinking about as I'm going about my day. And so you don't have to change it all in one day. They say small steps make big progress. So you can sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash real life. Again, that's noom.com slash real life. Noom.com slash real life. Start your trial today. While I'm obviously not a medical or mental health professional who can determine if noise is making us crazy, I do know what it's doing to me. I want to escape it, but at the same time, like an addict, I want to be back in it. Silence is quiet, but it also roars. Noise distracts and numbs. And while the white noise all around us is certainly not ideal, I don't think we realize how quickly normal noise crosses into damaging noise. For instance, in a New York Times article from a few years ago, a reporter was curious about measurable noise levels, so he went around and measured them in the city at various spots. Granted, New York is easily one of the noisiest cities in the world, but the places he visited weren't unique to New York and are similar no matter where you are. Places like these could be found in any populated area. One employee at a place the journalist visited said, I've been getting migraines. So much so that she would wake up with her ears ringing and buzzing and she began taking medicine usually prescribed for seizures. Where did this employee work? The JFK tarmac? A construction site? No, she was a waitress at a normal restaurant. 
a place we go to eat and hopefully have deep, meaningful conversations. But during the waitress's conversations, the journalist noted the waitress had to lean in close to hear and to yell even to be heard. And when measured, the restaurant averaged noise levels around 96 decibels, a level that the government says is not suggested for working conditions past the maximum of a few hours without ear protection, let alone an entire work shift multiple times per week. And leisure conditions like eating at a restaurant should be even at a lower level. That article made me think twice about how much we have normalized insane levels of noise. In fact, this has created a disagreement between Alyssa and me on almost every date night, which now I'm on her team after reading some of these articles. Because she wants to go somewhere where we can talk, and I do too, but I also want to go somewhere exciting, which usually means somewhere loud. She rightly hates places like that because they don't allow for intimacy and connection. And I wonder why I willingly love and subject myself to places that are essentially assaulting us with the weapon of noise. But when that New York Times journalist spoke with hearing loss prevention experts who know more about our ears than anyone else, they said people should not be exposed to any noise over 100 decibels for more than 10 to 15 minutes. They're quoted as saying, we definitely consider those levels able to cause damage and likely to cause permanent damage with repeated exposure said Laura Kauth, an audiologist and president of the National Hearing Conservation. Those noise levels aren't just happening on a tarmac next to an airplane jet or beneath some giant machine in a factory. They're also measured consistently in that spin class we go to in the morning in that bar we head to on Friday night. You might be thinking, well, of course it's noisier these days, but that's just part of our culture. No one is doing it on purpose. But actually, some restaurants are. They're weaponizing noise for profit to speed up their table turns. Some research shows that people drink more when music is loud, AKA spend more money, and chew faster, which means finish their meals and leave faster when louder music is present. The noise sets your pace whether you realize it or not. When I worked as a server in high school, it was clear that the main way to make more money was to get people to eat as fast as possible and leave as fast as possible so a new customer could sit down. And in fact, the Hard Rock Cafe was built upon this very premise and quote, had the practice down to a science ever since its founders realized that by playing loud, fast music, patrons talk less, consumed more, and left quickly. But consider a declassified CIA document detailing torture techniques at black sites during the War on Terror. It mentions, quote, loud music 17 times and says that torture, specifically in Guantanamo Bay, involved heavy strobe lights and loud music. So if loud music and overstimulation and strobe lights are used as tactics of war and torture, why do we willingly subject ourselves to them in everyday life? Torture techniques on terrorists or a rave at a club for millennials, the same thing, apparently. What silence sounds like. When I normally go to bed at night, the house is silent. No one is speaking, no phones or tablets are on, there is no obvious noise. But one night, the power went out while we were going to sleep and it was different. It was creepy silent, meaning the noise dropped from silent to terrifying because the dozens of devices that are usually receiving electricity in our house, the fridge, the modem, the vacuum charging, ceiling fans, were no longer humming and buzzing. That was true silence. And I realized I probably hadn't heard it for ages. What do we hear when there's no human noise at all? 
George Prochnik, the author of In Pursuit of Silence, set out to do exactly that, find silence. And not just any type of silence, but his goal was to find what he deemed as the quietest place in the world. This led him to Iowa in the basement of Trappist New Millaray Abbey, which is noted to be one of the quietest places on earth. As the monk showed him the way to the basement, he warned, quote, the silence of the room was so intense, it was likely to take him outside of his comfort zone. Some people from big cities, the monk added, find themselves, quote, physically unable to remain in the chapel for even five minutes. After I wrote this book, I even found another story of astronauts who have to do silent training because it's sometimes so silent in space that they actually have to go through training to get used to it. It's so silent at certain points, they can actually hear their internal organs and bones moving and creaking. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about Stamps.com. You guys know I love Stamps.com and this is a perfect ad spot for this episode because I have used Stamps.com to ship out books from our house um, for years and I absolutely love them. Now, if you don't know what Stamps.com is, basically what they do is they bring all the amazing um, services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products or doing it like I am from my office, they can help you. You basically use your computer to print off official US postage, any letter, any package, any class, anywhere you want to send. And with stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp up to 40% off priority mail. And right now we wanna hook you guys up. It's a no brainer. You get to save time and money. So we wanna hook you guys up with a special offer. That's a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in lasts. That's stamps.com and enter lasts. When we first think about silence and solitude, we may not care much about it, or we may even think that it sounds religiously sexy and hipster, cool and trendy until we try it. And then we are shocked and maybe even terrified by it because in silence, we feel exposed and naked and weirdly we become noisy ourselves not outwardly, but inside our heads. So we quickly dismiss it. But here's the unsexy and unpolished truth. Our aversion to that nakedness and the awkwardness and the ugliness we feel are actually why we need to do it. If we never experience it, we are continually buzzing, always anxious, wired and on edge, empty and spiritually thin and malnourished. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual thinkers, said about his experience with silence and solitude, quote, Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. It's not a therapeutic place. It's where you go to die. He went on to say that silence is such a force because it is truly one of the only places we are laid bare, completely naked, no calls to make, no meetings to attend, no tasks to accomplish, no music to listen to. It's complete nothingness. Again, he's quoted as saying, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. And here's the worst part. That's just the beginning. If we stay in it a little longer and push through it, up bubbles a myriad of distractions, random ideas, images, and thoughts that feel so uncomfortable we wonder, do I really have these thoughts? Where is this coming from? But to stay put in the quiet place is to stay put in the desert, 
a place we can't survive on our own, where mirages of our false self pop up again and again. And we are desperate for someone to save us and meet us there, thirsty for just a drop of water. And that's where these words of Henry Nouwen speak to me over and over again as a beautiful reminder. He said, The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Silence and solitude are like a graveyard for all the worst in you and your false self. And if we want to live into our true selves, the ones Jesus created us to be, we have to enter through the graveyard. We have to take ourselves to the desert. For more than two decades, I tried to resist this open grace, to escape silence. I was the kid who couldn't fall asleep without the TV on and who got in trouble frequently for never being quiet in class. When you think of a hyperactive, ADHD, bouncy kid, you are thinking of me. When I started following Jesus in college, it was visceral and emotional and new and fresh and exciting. But at the same time, every time I'd get quiet and sit at his feet, it was brutal. The minute I'd get still was the minute I'd start to be tormented by vivid pictures of choices I made that I was wearing in my body. I felt my sin and it hurt. Some of the memories were from years before, yet in those moments I could feel them as if they happened five minutes ago. I remember one angst-filled moment in particular. I'd been wanting and needing to spend time with Jesus, yet I was disillusioned with the fact that the quieter I got, the more it actually felt like torture. I threw my Bible across the room and yelled, this doesn't even work. Silence and solitude hurt. I began to hate it and avoid it because I didn't like what happened or what I saw in that silence. This began a journey of doing all the Christian things I was supposed to do, praying and reading my Bible, but without ever slowing down or quieting myself. Why didn't anyone tell me? Where did I get this picture that time alone with Jesus was therapeutic, beautiful, serene, and peaceful? Was I doing something wrong? Was something broken? I realized that yes, something was broken, me. See, I married Alyssa in 2012, and anyone who is married knows that that up-closeness of marriage can be startling. You are now joined as one, sleeping in the same bed, sharing a house, doing life together, and partnering on everything and anything. When I was close with Alyssa, I started to get that sense she had something I didn't. What was it? There was an anchoring about her. She seemed so grounded, so at ease in the slowness and the quiet and the stillness. She even seemed to pursue it. If we were busy or if our schedule was crammed that week, she'd fight to get away and crave those moments. Not unlike Jesus in Luke, where Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus voluntarily withdrew to the lonely places on purpose. Alyssa had that same rhythm about her while I was afraid of the lonely places and ran as far as I could from them. But love did what it always does. Slow and steady hits with the chisel on the rock of a heart. One hit doesn't do much, but one hit gets you to a hundred, and a hundred gets you to a thousand, and a thousand well-placed hits of the chisel create something beautiful. And man, it was hard and still is at times. It took three or four years of me seeing Alyssa be comfortable with silence and actually crave it until I began to think, you know, I think I can try that again now. Maybe the very thing I was running from was actually the thing I needed most. And the pain of it was a smoke signal telling me that this is where I needed to be. Realizing my aversion to silence and solitude as normal was the hard but necessary first step. I knew I had two options. I could go around my true self within the noise, or I could go through my true self with silence. The beautiful part is that even though it's messy and painful and glaring, we aren't alone. Jesus meets us there in the silence. 
and he's waiting for us in our pain. And let's be honest, sometimes it feels like he doesn't. But when we keep showing up again and again, he doesn't leave us out in the cold. As the prophet Isaiah said, Jesus gives us streams in the wasteland. He meets us in the place of death with sustaining life. He won't take us out of that place, but he will sustain us in that place. In fact, when we see his face in those moments, it's almost as if we're not waiting for him. It's as if he's been waiting for us. In that mundane, everyday ordinariness, we see him face to face, eye to eye, and we start to hear something different. Not noise, but his voice, where he says, this is your true self, the one I saw when I died for you. I've been here the whole time, waiting for you to get here. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the last sponsor of this episode, and that was Brooklyn, and you guys know we love Brooklinen. I love them because you spend a third of your life in your sheets, so they should matter. You should care about what you're actually sleeping on and that you should actually want to sleep well. And that's why I love Brooklinen, because they're hotel quality sheets that don't cost an arm and a leg, and they have over 35,000 five-star reviews, more than any other online bedding company. Now, I love their story too. It was founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife, Vicky and Rich. Their mission was to basically make you comfortable in luxury sheets, towels, and bedding, but without a luxury markup. And I think they've done a good job at that. Uh, and they are incredible. They don't just feel great, but they look great too. You can mix and match uh, 20 plus different colors and patterns. So uh, they're the most comfortable sheets. There are guys and their towels have turned uh, our bathroom into just a place that I want to use more and more because they're so soft. So I recommend them to friends, family, and everyone. So you can get 10% off and free shipping when you use the promo code real at brooklinen.com. And they're actually so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. So the only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use the promo code REAL at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code REAL. A quiet revolution. When we think of famous rebels or revolutionaries or resistors from history, we tend to think about noise and violence, about warfare and a small band of militia fighters trying to take down an empire. Not me. I think about Fred Rogers. Yes, Mr. Rogers. Of course, there's the urban legend he was a Navy SEAL and wore those awesome cardigan sweaters to cover up full-length arm sleeve tattoos, but I don't mean in that regard. Mr. Rogers was a rebel and a revolutionary because of how different he was on television. I remember watching him as a kid and gravitating towards his peace and his calm and his secure quietness. Maybe because I always had such a tough time with those exact things. Looking back now, it's astounding to think about what he did, how he predicated his show on calm, slow, methodical, and pointed talking. Yet silence and slowness are now treated like diseases to be eradicated, especially on television. TV inherently calls for more noise and stimulation. The cuts and pace and music are intentionally nothing like real life. If only punching someone would say, pow, like the old Batman days. In fact, especially during Mr. Rogers' era, I remember cartoons growing in noise, speed, and stimulation. Today, most animated shows are an assault on the senses, causing violence to our more sensitive awareness, attempting to entertain and stimulate via a metaphorical electric shock that ends up frying the more fragile parts of us. Mr. Rogers knew that, and he knew it was creating a culture of buzz and anxiety, so he fought for the opposite. Think of the boardroom fight that must have happened at least once or twice. 
Fred, you can't be silent for 10 seconds on TV and say and do absolutely nothing. That's the equivalent of a year in television time. People will immediately turn it off. But Mr. Rogers knew the difference. The media's culture of noise is like giving someone meth or cocaine. It overstimulates, lies to your senses, and then something in you weirdly craves it again, even though before you experienced it, you never realized you desired it. The only way to fight something like this is with the anchored, deep, slow presence of silence. Silence today is so rare, so undervalued, that in itself it is an act of resistance. Mr. Rogers used that silence strategically. Silence is the greatest gift we have, he once said, and he fought for that silence everywhere. He even had a ritual in which every meeting spanning across decades actually had to start with silence. He'd instruct his staff and team to take one minute at the beginning of the meeting to think of a person who had a positive impact on their life, and he'd watch the time and tell them when the minutes was up. One year, he was invited to the White House for a conference on children's education and television, where he met with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, and the highest level executives of PBS. And how do you think he started that meeting with some of the most powerful people in the world? With 60 seconds of silence during which they were told to think about someone who had made an impact on them. He did the same thing when he accepted his Lifetime Achievement Award at the 1997 Emmys. In the middle of his speech, he took off his watch, told the audience he'd keep the time, and he led them in the very same exercise. He was leading not just the audience in the theater, but also the 18,744,000 people watching all over the country in that same moment. And it was clear from the very first second or two when a few in the audience laughed or howled, they thought maybe he was joking, but he was serious. It was the Emmys and millions were watching. One second of silence could easily lose those millions of viewers. I particularly love Esquire's account of the moment. They said, And then he lifted his wrist and looked at the audience and looked at his watch and said softly, I'll watch the time. And there was, at first, a small whoop from the crowd, a giddy, strangled hiccup of laughter as people realized he wasn't kidding. That Mr. Rogers was not some convenient eunuch, but rather a man, an authority figure who actually expected them to do what he asked. And so they did. One second, two seconds, three seconds. And now the jaws clenched and the bosoms heaved and the mascara ran and the tears fell upon the beglittered gathering like rain leaking down a crystal chandelier. And Mr. Rogers finally looked up from his watch and said, may God be with you to all his vanquished children. I wonder how many that night truly experienced their first minute of intentional, deliberate silence. That night, Mr. Rogers also reunited with Jeff Erlanger, a quadriplegic man in a wheelchair who had been on his show decades before as a kid. Mr. Rogers' gentleness and tenderness in that moment is honestly one of the most real and beautiful moments I've ever seen on TV. If you have a few minutes, go watch it on YouTube. It's when Mr. Rogers showed himself to be a resistor and a rebel all over again. And here's the truth we have to reckon with. Slow or silent space doesn't mean wasted space no matter how much our world tells us it does. Empty space does not need to always inherently be filled. It can just be. What would it look like if we were to be people who reclaimed spaces of silence as an act of resistance in our daily lives? The quietest place. I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and if you hop in the car and drive a few hours west around the Puget Sound, you'll end up in Olympic National Park. It's a gorgeous, sprawling area covering most of that left hook you see when you look at Washington State from above. 
Think Twilight and Bella and Edward, and you'll begin to picture what it looks like. The books were actually set in the tiny town of Forks, Washington, right outside the park. There's a particular part of the park called the Ho Rainforest, informally referred to as one of the seven wonders of Washington state. Lesser known than the Amazon rainforest, it is still quite dramatic in aesthetic and actual rainfall. People always joke that Seattle is the rainy city, which it is, averaging about 36 inches of rain per year. But here's the crazy part. The Ho rainforest averages almost that, 30 inches, in rainfall just from fog and mist moisture every year. For actual rainfall, it averages 14 feet per year. And because of that, it is one of the most lush and green forests you'll ever walk into. Feel free to pop onto Google and look real quick. Moss hangs from virtually every square inch of tree trunk and foliage. But here's the real reason Ho Rainforest is so awesome. If you venture deep into the forest, you might come across a seemingly random tiny red stone. But this stone is not just any stone. It's actually a marker laid out by ecologist Gordon Hempton and his friend Fritz to mark the quietest place in the United States. It's a marker, a metaphorical stake in the ground claiming ownership and authority. Oh, and did I mention Fritz is actually a mannequin doll head rigged with a microphone? Visualize the heads you sometimes see people shooting at at FBI training headquarters in all those crime movies, and you know what Fritz looks like. Hempton became interested in searching for the quietest place on Earth as part of his research, and this led him here, to the Ho Rainforest. But he wasn't just set on discovering the quietest place on Earth, he is also set on defending it. He systematically hikes into the forest on certain days, takes noise readings, and as he says, when a noise intrusion occurs, I locate the noisemaker and I send them a letter and ask for their compliance. He continued by saying, this matter is urgent. It's likely that in 10 years, there will be no quiet places left unless we take action. I think Hempton's work is a great metaphor for our walk with Jesus. There are two steps to carving out this formation. First, we have to seek it, to seek silence, to chase after it, trek into the deep centers of a sacred space looking for where we might find it. But once we get there, we have to defend it. And like Hempton, when a noise intrusion occurs, we need to locate the source and ask for their compliance. See, we aren't slaves to the noise, to our phones, to the buzz, to the assault on our senses. We can and should ask, no, better yet, demand compliance. Our souls are at stake. And just like any resistance, whether a world revolution or a coup of an empire, it always, without fail, starts small with one action, a tiny bit of momentum. And that's how it is on our journey with Jesus. You aren't going to have a beautiful, serene, three-hour period of silence and solitude right away. Well, maybe you will, but it surely wasn't that way for me. It was more like two minutes, and I itched. But I have to resist the need to scratch. I have to stay in it, put one foot in front of the other, and practice. There is a reason it's called a spiritual practice, because it takes practice repetition, and learning and iterating and changing and adapting. And in that silence, you'll find a space where your old self begins to suffocate and your new self begins to be renewed. And the truth of God begins to slowly but surely fill and rewire and recalibrate your new humanness, the self that walked out of the grave with Jesus 2,000 years ago to new life, pacing and directing towards the new Jerusalem where all is put back together once and for all. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening today. I hope that chapter was encouraging to you. Hey, if you're interested in getting some more freebies, reading some more of this book early, or just getting a bunch of goodies, pre-order the book today, any retailer, and just send us your receipt at tohellwiththehustlebook.com and you will get hooked up with all of these things. Uh, And I can't wait to hear what you guys think. 